folks. Merry Christmas. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilderness Church, and it's really good to see all of you. I'm glad you made the choice to come and join us for this Christmas Eve celebration. I'd like to open with a word of prayer. Lord, we're overwhelmed, if we have any understanding at all, of the incredible distance you crossed and the sacrifice you made to redeem us and restore us back to the Father. If we have any understanding at all, Lord, this celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ should be mind-boggling to us, and it is. And so, Lord, we just ask that you be present here. Fill this place with your sweet, serene, gentle spirit. I pray, Lord God, that you use this service to deepen our understanding of who you are and what you came to do and draw us closer to you, to deepen our joy and knowing you and being related to you. And for those, God, who maybe are during this season troubled, maybe it brings up memories of painful things or maybe life just hasn't turned out the way they had hoped. God, I pray that you'll use this service to be a comfort to them and reveal to them that you are their best friend and you'll never leave them or forsake them. Be honored as we, Lord, reflect on you and sing praise to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, If you're visiting for the first time, we really want to give a special welcome to you. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about this church and what we believe and what we're called to do. Mary, you're not supposed to come up here for a little bit, but you can come if you want. This is Mary, our children's pastor, and she's playing the role of mother mother or grandmother. One of the two. We haven't decided yet. I got in trouble for calling her grandmother the last service, so I I better behave myself. But if you're visiting for the first time, I want to give a special welcome to you. And if you want to find out more about this church, stop at the visitor's table in the gathering area. Um, We've got a packet of information we'd love to give you with a CD and some other things on it. Let you know kind of what we're about. Please turn off your cell phones and pagers at the present time if you haven't done so already. And uh, I hope we have some kids in the, in the auditorium. But if anyone starts getting too out of control, we have soundproof rooms in the back if you need to take them back there. Uh, kind of how the, the, the service will progress is like this. I'm going to read a couple passages that we're going to be reflecting on tonight. Uh, and then Mary will uh, ask all the children. Uh, the first service, we had... 300 and some kids here. It was all over the place. There'll be a few less tonight, I suspect, but they'll come up and uh, uh, Mary will read a, a children's story and then the kids can get some presents. So kids, you got some presents tonight. And then I'll give an adult version of this story and then we'll go back into singing some, uh, some Christmas songs. So the passages I want us to reflect on, there's two of them really. The first one is a very traditional Christmas passage. The second one is not rarely associated with Christmas. But as you'll see tonight, it's very Christmassy. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The second reading is the less traditional Christmas one, but it's very Christmassy as we'll see here. It's from Luke chapter 15. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders 
and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who at least don't think they need to repent. Amen. Mary? Children, I'd love for you to come up if you're from one-year-olds up to about 11. Come on up. I'm going to read a story, and then I'm going to... I have a little treat for you afterwards. So come on up, children. Come on up and have a seat right up here around me. Come on. Good job. Have a seat right here. Hi. So glad you're here. All right. I'm going to read a story to you, and you uh, can look at the pictures I have up here, or if you can't see them, they're going to be up on the screen, okay? All right. You ready? David the lamb was perhaps the whitest coated wool lamb in the whole flock. His coat shone brightly in the sunlight, and he raced the other young lambs. Whoopee! I can beat you all, he said. Of course you did, said one of the lambs. You always win. Ah, don't be mad, Simon, David said to his friend. I can't help it if I'm the fastest lamb. You don't have to brag about it all the time, he said. Hey, you young lambs, said the elderly ram as he came towards them. I've got some great news. What is it, Morty? David asked. Morty gave the lambs a grin. Well, you all know that we are the king's royal sheep, right? Of course, said Simon. The king is very concerned about us. He loves us, you know. David stomped his hoof and said, Yes, we know. Tell us what the news is. Well, said the ram, Ruver has it. He is sending us a new shepherd. Is that all, David said? No, that is not all, said the ram. And if you would learn to be patient, it would be good for you. He's not just sending us an old shepherd. He is sending us his son. <gasps> a gasp went up among the lambs. The king's own son is going to be our shepherd? Whoa, said Simon. All that day, the flocks waited and waited for the new shepherd. What do you think he'll look like, asked one of the lambs. Oh, I'll bet he'll be nice, said Simon. David began to prance through the grass in his excitement. I know what he'll be like. He'll be dressed in royal robes, and he'll have hundreds of servants, and he will wear a crown, and he will ride on a beautiful horse. And no, 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 not a horse. He'll ride on a big elephant. Oh, David was so excited. He couldn't believe it. Yeah, and the elephant's going to be covered with jewels and... There is going to be an army. It will be right behind him. The biggest, strongest army ever. And there will be no wolves and there will be no lions to attack this flock. Ha! He said. And he jumped and made an invisible kick. Kawabunga, you vermins! Don't mess with this guy! David, I think you're exaggerating, Simon said. You'll see, David said. He's going to be amazing. After waiting all day, many of the lambs and the sheep began to drift off to sleep. As the stars came out, Are you sure it's today, Simon, said to Morty. Yeah, are you sure, said David. The new shepherd is never going to get here. Morty gave the lambs a smile. Just be patient, little ones. He's coming. I know it. The king promised he would send him. Suddenly, a single small light appeared on the top of the hill. 
Is that a new star, David asked. I think it's a lamp, said Simon. Morty stared. Oh, that's him, he said. Where are all the servants and the army and the elephants, asked David. Simon looked at David. I guess he came alone. Then he turned and followed after Morty. Simon, David stared towards the approaching light. What kind of prince doesn't even have a servant or an elephant? He shook his head and made his way back to where the others were gathering. Standing amidst the sheep was a man, and he wasn't tall, and he wasn't strong-looking, and his robes were no splendor. Nevertheless, his face, though not what you might consider handsome, but his face was full of goodness. But David hadn't given that man's face or eyes even a glance. He was too busy and staring in disbelief. I cannot believe that this is the king's son. He's not even wearing a crown, whispered Simon. Morty must have heard something wrong. The man held out his hand. In the other, he held out a long shepherd's crook. Hello, my little sheep, he said. You have nothing to fear. I will guide and care for you as he touched them. David looked at Simon and shook his head. Ugh, boring. He's nothing special. With that, David turned, and he went to a nice spot in the grass for the night. But David's life was far from boring. Because that night, a storm like no other he heard blew in. The rain poured down and the thunder and the lightning crashed in the sky. This new shepherd began waving for the sheep to get going. He said to them, I'll take you to a safe place. But David, he turned away and didn't listen. What does he know about shepherding, he said to himself. He probably is going to get everybody lost. I'm going to go find my own space and some rocks, said David to himself. So David trotted off into the storm in search of a dry place. But he found it wasn't easy as he thought. Not only was he unable to find a place to rest, but the storm got bigger and stronger. Soon he was walking in water, covered his hooves. He was miserable, alone, wet, and scared. David wanted to turn back, but he didn't know where he was. He was lost. He decided to try to call for help. Perhaps there was still somebody close by. But no one came. None of his friends came. But something did hear his cry. Pouncing onto a boulder was a big, hungry lion. The lion licked his lips at the sight of poor David and caught alone in the storm. He gave a mighty roar and he jumped down on the rocks. David looked about. There was nowhere to go. He didn't know what to do. What was this, this cat going to do to him? This time, for some reason he didn't understand, he called out, Shepherd, Prince, Son of God, come, Son of King, come and help me, please help me. The lion prepared to pounce on him. It gave a final, a figure in the brown suddenly ran after David and the lion oh, it was the shepherd get back you lion said the shepherd you will not hurt my sheep he is mine and I will protect him and he took his staff and he hit the lion but without warning the lion attacked and it pounced on the shepherd but he knew what to do. He took his staff again, and he struck the lion again and knocked the lion senselessly, senselessly to the ground. David stared at the unconscious lying in disbelief. The shepherd had done this. The shepherd had protected him. David looked up at the shepherd. Are you all right, he said. Are you all right, my little lamb, said the shepherd. He nodded. 
but you were hurt as he looked at the blood dripping from the shepherd's arm. The shepherd knelt beside him and said, it was worth it to keep you safe. Are you ready to come back now? I want to take you back to the flock so we can celebrate you and with others. Okay, said David, but first can I rest? I'm so tired from all of this. In his gentle arms, the shepherd lifted him up. I will carry you, said the shepherd. And as they walked, the storm began to weaken. Soon the rain finally stopped, and a snuggled little lamb was in the shepherd's arms. The end. You know, this story reminds me of how Jesus came for us to save us, just like that shepherd took care of the little lamb. Jesus came, and how did he come? Did he come as a big lion? No. How did he come? A baby in a, in a manger. And this story reminds us of how much Jesus loves us. You know what I'd like you guys to do? Will you help me sing a song? I would like you to help me sing Away in the Manger. If you guys could stand up and sing and face out there and sing Away in the Manger with me as we are singing it together. The first time we're going to sing it together and sing Away in the Manger for our parents and friends. And then you're going to go down and I'm going to give you a treat for being up here. All right? You ready to sing? Here we go. Away. together as the children go down. Away. Go ahead and go get your presents now. They're down there. We have a treat bag for you, okay? a hand to Mother Mary and her children. Uh, good job, Mary. Thank you. She got a little more animated each service. I mean, she was really into that. Roar! Got a little help from the crowd. Excellent. Good job, you guys. Story's packed with a lot of theological truth. Jesus comes not looking like you'd expect a king. We were lost. The devil's ready to pounce on us. He's a roaring lion, you know. But uh, through his life and ministry, uh, he rescued us. I want to build on that theme a little bit. The story of the good shepherd leaving his 99 sheep and going out looking for the one lost sheep. What's amazing about that in the, in the gospel is that that's a story about what God is like. doesn't matter how big God's flock is. When there's one who is lost, even when it's that sheep's own fault, this God leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one that's lost. And the question that it raises and that I want to talk about a little bit here tonight, as we're reflecting on the meaning of Christmas, is what kind of God does that? What kind of God does that? 
One way of getting at the question that I'm wrestling with here tonight uh, was raised to me by my father. Some of you might know that in the late 80s, my dad was an atheist, and um, uh, I'd been a Christian now for 16, 17 years, and that just baffled him. He couldn't figure, he really thought all Christians were just really stupid, and he thought I was going through a little phase that I would grow out of once I went to college or something, and I never outgrew it. I know he was a little puzzled by it, but I never had a chance to explain to him why I was a Christian. I tried several times. He'd get mad, then I'd get mad, and it didn't do any good. So, so we had, had kind of shut up about the topic for a number of years. But I wrote him a letter in the late 80s, uh, just feeling like I wanted the chance to lay it all out on the table. And I said, Dad, uh, look it. I'd like to explain to you why I'm a Christian, and I'd like to give you a chance to give me every reason why you're not. And just shoot every objection you have toward, to, uh, at me and any questions you have. And then let me have a chance to kind of de- defend it. And, and, and we may not convince one another, but at the very least, we'll have a better understanding of one another. And somewhat to my surprise, he accepted the challenge or the offer. And we started exchanging letters. For three years, we exchanged about 30 letters. Uh, they're now collected in this book called Letters from a Skeptic. And uh, it resulted in, not to ruin the end of the book, but I'll tell you now, it's, he, he ended up giving his life to, to the Lord in 1991. Uh, it's one of the most significant events of my life. One of the first questions he asked in this dialogue was this. Greg, look it. If God did exist, I'm not saying he does, but if he did exist, why would he care about human beings? When you think about how big the universe is, and you think about how old the universe is, and you think about how small human beings are and how recent human beings are, according to scientists, if you, if you were to chart the age of the, of the universe on a 24-hour clock, humans have arisen in the, about the last half a second. And so he's saying, given how recent we are and how small we are and how big the universe is, why would God, the creator of all this allegedly, why would he care about us? He's got bigger and more important things to think about if he exists. There's been a number of uh, atheistic philosophers uh, in the last several years who have written books that have argued along the same lines. People like Richard Dawkins, you may have heard of him, and Christopher Hitchens, you may have heard of him. There's a number of vocal atheists who are making arguments against the existence of God. And this is one of their arguments. Uh, For example, I I read one one who argued uh, this way. Do you realize, he says, that there how many stars there are? There are 10 to the 21st power number of stars. That's 10 with 21 zeros after it. They have a, n- a name for that number, and I can't remember what it was, but, but it's trillions times trillions times trillions times trillions of stars. Our star, our sun, is just one of those 10 to the 21st power number of stars. And our star is actually, our sun is actually relatively small compared to most of them. Some of them are so big, you could put 10,000 of our suns into one of them. It's just massive. And given the size of the universe and and the length of the universe, the estimated it's like 13 billion years old, why would God, the God who created all of this, care about these little tiny people on this little tiny planet in this little tiny solar system in a relatively small galaxy in just one of many, many galaxy clusters? Uh, It's maybe back in the day when human beings thought that the earth was the center of everything. And they thought human beings were just the most important thing around. Maybe then you could understand, back in the primitive days, why people would think that God actually cared about humans. But come on, this is the scientific age. We know how small and insignificant we are. And isn't it sort of arrogant and even silly? 
and even superstitious to think that God cares about these little tiny people on this little tiny planet, this little tiny solar system, little tiny galaxy, and on and on. When, uh, one person argued this way, if you were to try to find our sun in this universe packed full of stars, it would be the equivalent of trying to find one particular grain of sand in a pile of sand the size of the United States, 27 feet deep. It's a lot of sand. Trying to find one particular grain of sand. And if you're going to try to find the earth, since the earth is a whole lot smaller than the sun, your challenge would be 10,000 times harder. We're so very, very small in the total scheme of things. How could God care about us? Part of what's going on here, I think, is this. We tend to associate size with importance. We can call this way of thinking size thinking. We tend to associate size with importance. We even reflect this in our language. For example, we might say, oh, this is huge, meaning that's really important. This is a huge problem, which means it's an important problem. This has massive implications. That means that there's a lot of important implications out of something. Our language reveals that we believe that size does matter. The bigger something is, the more important it is. We, we, we treat people this way. People who are uh, really, you know, have, have a huge influence on others. They're the important people. The George Bushes of the world and the Oprah Winfrey's of the world who impact so many people. They're the important people. Or the people who've got a, a huge following, like celebrities and famous people. Tom Cruise and, and maybe Bono of U2 and, and Britney Spears and Paris Hilton, I guess. I never understood how people like that get famous, but they do. Uh, and, and so if Bono or Oprah or George Bush walked into the room right now and we all noticed it, I guarantee you it would change the atmosphere of the room. It's like, whoa. Whoa, guess who's here? President Bush is here. Or maybe some people would be going, President Bush is here. <laughs> I don't know. Depends on your politics. But, uh, or Oprah, everyone loves Oprah. Oprah's here. Whoa. And you want to go get her autograph or sit next to her or something. It would just change stuff. Because why? Because they have such a huge influence and everybody knows about them. And somehow that, that puts them up there. And if you invited them over to their house and they accepted, which of course they wouldn't because they're too big, uh, too important. But if they did accept, hell, you'd be nervous. You would not have your underwear on the kitchen table anymore. Either the pots would not be in the sink sitting there for three weeks. And, and that little stain on the carpet would probably be taken up. You'd, you'd decorate the house. You'd give the best. Why? Because these folks are important. They're big. They're huge. And see, what happens, I think, is we, we, we apply this kind of thinking to God. You know, if the important people in the world don't know who, who you are, why would God? And if the important people in the world don't care about you because they don't know about you, uh, then why would God? We think of the universe is so big, God must be a billion times bigger than that. And since we are so very, 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 very small, how could God care about us? If there's anything that the story of the Good Shepherd is meant to demonstrate, it's how wrong our size thinking is. It demonstrates that God is the kind of God where it just doesn't matter how big the flock is. When one sheep is lost, all of his attention, all of his concern is on that sheep. It is as though that sheep was the only sheep that he had and the only sheep that matters. Jesus tells us that God's the kind of God where he notices and cares about every bird that falls to the ground. 
He's a, he's a God who has an, uh, an attention to detail. Jesus tells us that he's got the hairs of our head numbered. He knows you that well. He knows every little thing about you. He's a God who attends to detail. And if there's, if there's anything the Christmas narratives in the Bible teach us, it's that he's a God who not just knows about and cares about small things, he's a God who delights in small things. In fact, I, I, I wanted to entitle this message, the God, the, 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 great, the, the great and holy... What was the title of this message, Dan? It was the holy, God's great and... There it is. The great and holy smallness of God. I forgot to mention it earlier. The great and holy smallness of God. Uh, this is our third service. I'm going a little brain dead here. You've got to cut me a lot of slack here. The, the great and holy smallness of God. The, the Christmas narratives reveal that. Look at when, when, when God comes to this earth, first of all, the fact that he comes to earth reveals that he cares about the small because we're very, very small. But when he comes to earth, he doesn't come as a giant Oz face. Wizard of Oz sort of face. No, he comes as a tiny little baby. He doesn't come as a giant cosmic king. He comes as this vulnerable, weak infant. When he's born into the world, he doesn't come through royal blood, royal lineage. He bypasses Caesar, bypasses Pilate, bypasses Caiaphas, bypasses all the big movers and shakers and famous and influential people of the society. And he comes to two, really two kids. They're teenagers. Mary and Joseph, and they're peasants. He's born into poverty. When he comes into the world, he doesn't come in a way that will make him famous. If anything, the way he comes into the world will make him infamous. He, from the start, has a tainted reputation because he's born to a Jewish girl who's not uh, fully married yet. She's betrothed, but she's not fully married yet. And in first century Judaism, that was a scandal. Jesus was born outside of wedlock. When he comes into the world... He doesn't come with a lot of fanfare, as you'd expect of a king. If God was into size thinking, you would have th- thought he would have thrown something like, you know, the Oscar party, when they, have the, they give out the Oscars and they have a big party, and all the celebrities are there, and they drive up with all their great outfits and all their limousines. You know, everybody who's anybody would have been there if God was into size thinking. But when God comes into the world, there's not a lot of fanfare. In fact, hardly anyone knows about it. There's the shepherds out in the field, and then there's those three strange astrologers from, from Persia. They get invited. Weird guests get invited, but they're nobodies. He doesn't come with a lot of fanfare. And when he's born, he's not born in a royal huge palace. He's born in a little stable. There's no room in the inn even for him. And so he's put out in a cold stable full of animals, full of animal manure. This is a God who seems to gravitate towards smallness. And this tendency of God to become small and to love the small and to delight in the small is part of what makes him great and part of what makes him holy. The word holy in the Bible, uh, the root of it means to be distinct, to be set apart, to be different, to be unique. God is set apart and distinct and unique precisely because he doesn't conform to our size way of thinking. Though he is infinite in every conceivable way, he's unlimited in every conceivable way. He's, He's bigger, if you will, than we can possibly imagine. Though that is all true, this is a God who reduces himself down to something that is, by comparison, infinitesimally small and unknown and not famous. Not a palace, but born in a stable. What makes the manger scene, the nativity scene of Christmas, such a sacred scene is that it's the opposite of Oscar night. What makes it sacred and holy is that it's not at all it's not at all like Las Vegas. 
It doesn't appear at all the way humans make things out to be with our size thinking. It's the loneliness and the solitude and the quietness, the aloneness, the serenity of the nativity scene that makes it holy. The world doesn't notice it. A couple of astrologers, a couple of low-life shepherds, then Mary and Joseph, just kids, kneeling next to the, the Christ child, and there's a serenity and quietness and almost loneliness to it, and that's what makes it sacred. It's the smallness, little Bethlehem, and a little tiny cave, a stable, inside of Bethlehem, and a little tiny manger, and a little tiny baby. It's the smallness that's so surprising that makes this sacred. God delights in the small, not the big. You see this in Jesus' ministry. Jesus spent very little time with the big people, very little time with the movers and shakers and the high and the mighties. You know, he would go if he was invited, but that wasn't the the main crowd that he went to. The ones he went to, and this reveals God's heart, were the outcast, the poor, the maimed, the beggars, the rejects. Uh, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lepers, the, those, the, the insignificant people, the people that no one else noticed, those are the ones that Jesus hung out with. Those are the ones he ministered to the most. Why? Because they were the ones who, were most, who knew best that they were lost sheep in need of the good shepherd. God is a God who gravitates towards the small and the insignificant and the outsiders. And that's good news to us. Because, folks, the truth is, We are insignificant outsiders if we understand ourselves rightly. You and I, let's be honest, are small. You and I are insignificant by the normal ways of measuring things in this world, even if you're sort of important to a few people. By world standards, by social standards, certainly by the standards of the universe, you're very, very small. You're very, very insignificant. Your life is very short. My life is very short. You may live by comparison to other human beings a long time. Maybe you'll make it to 100. Who knows? But on the cosmic clock, that is a, that's a, the Bible calls your life a vapor. It's a, split, it's a fraction of a second. Our life is like a, 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 a little ripple that arises for a moment on this infinite ocean by a momentary breeze. And then it's done. We come and we go. And we're insignificant and we're small. But see, here's the greatness of God. Here's the holiness of God. As small and tiny as you are, and as small and tiny and insignificant as I am, none of us are going to be remembered by very many people 100 years from now. Let's be honest. We're not going to be Napoleon Bonaparte or Alexander the Great, and I'm kind of glad about that. But see, as small and insignificant as we are, here's the good news. God shows his greatness and his holiness by the fact that he loves you and he loves me as though we were the only ones he ever created. He could not love you more than he does right now. The size of his flock doesn't matter. He goes after the one as though it was the only one that ever existed. He shows his greatness and his holiness by the fact that he loves the one as though it was the only one. The trouble with my dad's question and the trouble with uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and the, and the rest of these is that they can't fathom the greatness of God. They have a very limited view of God. If God was limited, if God had a finite amount of, of, of intellectual power and, and heart power, love power, well then the size of the universe would create a big problem for him. 
If, if, if God was limited in terms of, of, of how much he could pay attention to, well, then the more things he created, the less attention he could pay to, pay to any one of them. And if God was limited in terms of his ability to love, well, then the more people he created, the, the, the less he could love every one of them. He'd have to spread his attention thin to cover the, the, the number of things he created, and he'd have to spread his love thin to, co- to cover the number of people he created. But see, God is not limited. He has unlimited intelligence and unlimited love. So God could create a trillion, trillion, trillion things and pay attention to every one of them as though every one of them, each and every one of them, was the only thing he created. And God can create a trillion people if he wants to, and he can love each and every one of them as though each and every one of them were the only ones he created. For the you mathematicians, you know that you can't fraction infinity. He doesn't have to spread his love thin to cover the multitude of people. So God loves you and God loves me as though we were the only ones that he ever created. I am an insignificant person by world standards, and so are you. But I can stand up here and I can tell you on the authority of God's word that I am the apple of his eye, the Bible says that. I am his precious child, the Bible says that. He loves me with an everlasting love, the Bible tells me that. He loves me as though I were his only child. He could not love me more than he does right this very moment. If, I, if, if no one else existed in all eternity, if all of God's attention was on me each and every moment, he, he couldn't love me more because, as a matter of fact, all of his attention is on me each, each and every moment. It's just that he's so great, I can say the same for you and the same for you and same, the same for every other person he's ever created. When you wake up in the morning, God's been looking at you all night long, just, just looking at you with eyes of love. Like a parent would a precious child. And his heart is yearning for you to become aware of that, receive it, and begin to love him back and enter into a love relationship with him. What the Christmas narratives are all about, you guys, is revealing the greatness and the holiness of God's smallness. This is a God who's great and holy precisely because he's a God who gravitates towards the tiny, the small, the insignificant. He's a God who comes into this world completely unannounced, to most people at least. He's a God who comes as a little baby, a God who comes uh, uh, to the abandoned. Uh, he's a God who comes to unknown parents. A God who comes uh, and is born in a little stable. He's the God who goes looking for that one lost sheep. A God who knows when the sparrow falls to the ground. A God who's got the hairs of your head numbered. And Christmas is the time for us to remember that. The insignificance is not only no problem to God, he delights in it and he pours himself into it. And so now it's good news that we are insignificant because it tells us where God's heart is at. It's also a good reminder to us, folks, the Christmas narratives. It's a good reminder to look for God in the small. Look for God in the small. If you're thinking with the size thinking, people tend to think that God is more in the big than he is in the small. God is at this great revival where they had 100,000 people there. Ooh, God really showed up there because there's so many people. And churches that get a lot of people, well, God must really be moving there. Whoa, you know, that crowd excitement means that God is there. And, and sometimes people want to honor God by building these big, giant, ornate buildings. And, and so it kind of reflects more of the greatness of God, they think, by having these giant buildings. And so God's in the big buildings, and God's in the big crowds, and God's in the big churches. And you may find God in the big crowds and you may find God in the big churches and you may find God in the giant cathedrals, bless you. And you certainly can find God in the enormity of, of the universe and the stars, they overwhelm you. And you see God in the, in the giantness of the mountains and other magnificent things. But what the Christmas story is telling us is this. Perhaps, 
The most profound place you'll find God is not in the giant stuff, but in the tiny stuff, in the small stuff. Mother Teresa got this. She said, if you want to see the face of Jesus, look in the face of the poor. Look in the eyes of the oppressed. Look, to, look, look, look at the lives of those who are abandoned, those who are oppressed, those who are on the outside. The insignificant people, the nobodies of this world, the people that no one notices or cares about. Look into their lives, care for them, and you'll find God like you don't find him anywhere else. God gravitates towards the insignificant, the outsiders, the hurt, the wounded, the lonely, the lost sheep. Rejoices in them coming to repentance far more than he rejoices in a person who thinks that they're righteous and got it all together and, and, and oh, yeah, they may not be perfect, but at least they're not sinful like those folks over there. No, no, God delights in those outsiders. Look for God in the small. Look for God in the understanding eyes of a friend or a counselor, a person in your life. Look for God in that gentle, loving caress of your spouse. Look for God. Listen, if you've got, if you got eyes to see, you'll see it. In the beautiful laughter of, of, of your children or the silly, silly behavior of your grandchild. All around you in the little things, in the insignificant things, that's where you're going to find God in the most profound and moving and Christmas-like and Christ-like kind of way. You know, I, I the last couple of years have had some doors open up to me that are, that are, are really fun and I've enjoyed it. Uh, talking on radio or television. There's venues for me to communicate something uh, of my, my vision of the kingdom. The kingdom that doesn't look like any kind of politics and the kingdom that doesn't look like any kind of religion because it's the kingdom that looks like Jesus Christ. And I have an opportunity to speak that in places, going to conferences, and sometimes there's some influential people that are there, and that's been a blast. But see, if you're thinking in terms of size, size thinking, you might think, well, Greg, that stuff, television, whoa, that stuff is more important than the small stuff you, that, that, that you might do. And I want to submit to you that that kind of size thinking is not where God is at. I'll tell you what has struck me as one of the most important things I've done in the last two years. My small group uh, uh, ministers on occasion to shut-ins in our neighborhood. We work with an agency that takes care of shut-ins. So uh, it's just one of the ministries that my small group has. We, we uh, fix, fix things in houses if they're broken or get groceries if they can't travel or shovel driveways or whatever. Now, part of my job is I lead Bible studies. And so several weeks ago, I had a chance to lead a Bible study for three people who are mentally challenged. And I went to this apartment where there's three folks there that were mentally challenged. And uh, it was so marvelous. We sang some songs with a lot of passion. And we won't win any awards for staying on tune or having any tune whatsoever. Uh, and we, or, or for keeping rhythm. I mean, it was, it was marvelously chaotic. But there was a beauty in that chaos. It was just, and, and, and we were into it. And then I did a little Bible study. And the point of the Bible study was to kind of do what I'm doing right now, to tell these, these folks that, you know, you are as important to God as the most famous person on the planet. And sometimes they'd, they'd interject comments, which I would try to weave into the, 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 the lesson, but sometimes I wasn't able to. So I asked them who they thought the most famous person was, and that got into a discussion about whether Charlton Heston or somebody else was the most famous person. And the mention of Charlton Heston got us into talking about the movie The Ten Commandments, because that shows that he was close to God. And then th that got into a discussion of a lady who's got a, this gift that someone gave her of the Ten Commandments with a waterfall coming over them, and they, she puts it on the table, which got into a discussion about how much the thing costs, because it costs $29, and why are these things so expensive these days? And trying to make a point out of this was kind of challenging. But you know, you know and, and here's the thing. 
If you're thinking size thinking, you wouldn't think this is going to have that much kingdom impact. You know, let's get practical here. This seems kind of insignificant. But what I was profoundly aware of as I'm in this room is that this is a sacred moment. This is a Jesus moment. What I'm aware of is that each of these folks, God looks at every one of them and loves every one of them as though they were the only ones that ever existed. Which means I am so privileged to be in this moment and ministering to these folks. Uh, from, from, from God's perspective, for all I know, this is the most important event in history. You see, God doesn't look at things the way we look at things. Uh, he's the God who delights in the small and the more insignificant it seems, possibly the more significant it actually is. And so I'm honored to be with these precious people sharing this sacred moment. God's not in the big stuff. Now, he can be there, he'll use that. But God gravitates to the small stuff, and that's what shows how great a God he is. This Christmas, think about that. God's holy greatness found in smallness. You're small and I'm small. But God displays his greatness because he's not at all like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens thinks. The size of the universe and the number of people is no problem to him. In terms of your relationship with him, his, all of his attention is on you. All of his love is burning towards you. And he's waiting for you, if you haven't done so already, to just pledge to return it by how you live and being aware of him and starting a conversation with him. He's passionately in love with you. He could not love you more than he does this very second. You could not have more worth in his eyes than you have this very second. And that's an offer that's on the table, no ifs, ands, or buts. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what crimes you committed. It doesn't matter the affair that you had or the abortion that you had or the stuff that you stole or the drugs that you used or the things that you destroyed or the people that you hurt. The offer's still on the table. The offer's still on the table because God's love isn't conditioned by any of that. God's love is conditioned just by the kind of God he is. And he reveals who that is by dying for you on the cross. That's what Jesus Christ is all about. Amen. 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 He's a precious God. And this Christmas, look for God in the small. Look for God in the small. Not in the Las Vegas stuff. No, in the eyes of the friend. In the hug of a companion. In the caress of your spouse. In the laughter of your children. In the play of your grandson. In all the small stuff around you, there's sacredness. There's beauty. And God will use every bit of it to reveal himself to you. Close your eyes for a moment as I lead us in prayer. You want to find God, don't look in the palace. Look in the stable. Father, teach us that truth. Holy Spirit, seal on our hearts right now whatever we need to know to take out of this service. Father, I pray that every person right here and right now would know, would know, would know for certain that your love for them is perfect, unconditional, unwavering, unsurpassable, as though they were the only child you ever created. Help them to receive that. Help that to just blow apart all lies that they may have internalized in their life. And then, Lord, teach us to look for you in the small, in the insignificant, in the outsider, in the lonely, in the friendless, in the poor, in the simple. Teach us to look for you in the small things. For you are a God who is holy and great because you're a God who gravitates towards the small. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're going to now go back to worshiping God and singing some carols. We'll start with a reflection that Ruth is going to lead us in via song. And it's a song about Mary. I want you to imagine this 13-year-old girl. That's about how old she would have been 
when she was betrothed to Joseph, a 13-year-old girl who's just been told, you, even though you've never had relations with a man, you are going to bear the Son of God. You're going to have the Son of God within you. And this song helps us get on the inside of her mind. She offers herself up. And as, we're, as Mary is singing, or as Ruth is singing this song, we're going to take up an offering. This is one of the ways that we worship God. We ascribe worth to God and worth to his kingdom by how we sacrifice with our giving. So we'll worship God by taking up this offering as Ruth leads us in this reflection on Mary. God is great, and he shows his greatness by loving the small. Let let that on the inside of you. As you're driving home, just be aware that God's looking at you. All of his attention is on you, and his love is there. And then look for God in the small stuff. Every little thing around you, look for God in the small stuff. Amen. Let his joy be on you and flow through you. And so I end with this prayer. Father, thank you for sending us your son, Jesus, for giving us yourself in a manger and on a cross. And God, as we leave this place, may we do so, Lord, with you, Holy Spirit, reminding us of the unsurpassable worth worth we have because of who you are and who you created us to be. And God, may we share that love and that joy with others around us. Help us to be your disciples during this season and at all times. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. God bless you guys. Merry Christmas. Go out and build a kingdom. We love you.